quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Happening now, new legal filings are expected within days or possibly hours from now in two high-stakes appeals by Donald Trump. And this comes as the former president is doubling down on an angry Christmas message to his opponents, wishing they would, quote, rot in hell. Also tonight, new images from inside Iraq, where U.S. airstrikes targeted Iran-backed militants in retaliation for a drone attack on American forces. Iraq is calling the strikes hostile acts and warning they could further ratchet up tensions in the Middle East. And Kanye West is belatedly apologizing to the Jewish community for a series of anti-Semitic outbursts. We're getting reaction to the rapper's Instagram post written in Hebrew. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Well, Flitzer is off today. I'm Pamela Brown, and you're in the Situation Room. And we begin this hour with the next shoes that are about to drop in Donald Trump's unprecedented legal battles with just days to go before the new year and just weeks to go before the first 2024 presidential contest. Let's go right to CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. Jessica, walk us through what's next for Trump and his lawyers. Well, Pamela, Donald Trump's legal team is likely spending these last days of 2023 prepping for the immunity case that they'll argue before the federal appeals court here in D.C. on January 9th. So they've submitted their brief to the court. That was over the weekend. And they're once again arguing that Donald Trump cannot be prosecuted by special counsel Jack Smith for anything related to January 6th because they say Trump was acting in his official capacity as president when he worked to overturn the 2020 election results. They're also arguing that because Trump was acquitted by the Senate in his impeachment trial, he also can't be criminally charged. So we'll actually see a response from the special counsel by the end of this week. And then arguments before the appeals court, they're scheduled that second week of January, January 9th. And you know, Trump already had somewhat of a victory just before Christmas on Friday, when the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his case before before the, the appeals court heard it. The special counsel had hoped to speed up the timeline of this immunity appeal, since of course everything is on pause while that immunity issue is decided. But time and delay will in fact be on Trump's side, at least for the next several weeks, making it very unlikely that his trial will actually start March 4th. But of course he will still have that slew of, of other legal issues heading into 2024. We've got the civil lawsuit brought against him by E. Jean Carroll for defamation. That trial set to start January 16th unless his legal team can figure out a way to delay, which we know they're working on. Then there's the hush money case involving Stormy Daniels. That's the case brought by the Manhattan DA. That is also still slated to go to trial in March, but the DA, Alvin Bragg, has said multiple times that that date could be pushed back. And of course, all of this happening as the campaign calendar is jam-packed, Trump focused on his 2024 campaign, while his legal team, Pamela, is focused on this litany of legal issues issues cascading into 2024. Yeah, they have certainly been busy this holiday season. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. So let's get more on Trump's court battles and what we can gather about his mindset with our legal and political experts. All right. So Kristen Holmes, 
Let's start with you here. Trump doubling down on his angry Christmas rants against the special counsel. What did he say and what does all of this reveal about his mindset around his many legal problems he's facing? Well, Pam, he's clearly very focused on all of this. As we know, he has been really wrapped up in these various cases, some of them more than others. And what we saw was a divisive Donald Trump on Christmas. Now, no surprise, generally, what we have seen from him when world leaders take to the stage, take to the pulpit to call for peace in times of war on the holidays. Uh, Donald Trump does not do that. So here's just some of what he had to say. One post, he said, Merry Christmas to all, including crooked Joe Biden's only hope, deranged Jack Smith, the out of control lunatic who just hired an outside attorneys fresh from the swamp to help him with his poorly executed witch hunt against Trump and MAGA. May they rot in hell. Again, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and then today, doubling down on this message about Jack Smith in particular, Biden's flunky deranged Jack Smith should go to hell. Uh, this is just really a preview of what we're going to see in the next several months, the next year, as Donald Trump runs for president, if, particularly if he is the GOP nominee, which at this point he is inching towards that, at least according to all of the polls. Uh, he is going to ramp up this rhetoric. And really, there's no reason for him not to do so, at least in terms of political pressure. When he's heading into these primaries and caucuses, he is actually seeing an uptick in his polls as he faces more legal troubles, as he amps up his rhetoric, particularly aggressive anti-immigration rhetoric, these attacks on Biden and Jack Smith. So you're likely to see more of that, at least until he would be the nominee and they might need to court more moderate voters. We'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, but certainly he is ratcheting up the rhetoric for sure and playing that victim card. So, Gene, Trump has a history of attacking prosecutors, judges, courtroom staff and witnesses. And that's led to two major gag orders against him. He has a right to free speech, of course. But ultimately, is he also undermining himself as a defendant? Absolutely. And let me just stress this. I've done uh, over 100 trials what you hear in the public domain, the First Amendment rights, the political rhetoric, that's all good. He's going to raise money. It's going to boost his poll numbers. But I can tell you this, having two major trials this year, when you get in a courtroom, Pam, when you present the evidence to a jury, whether you're a defense attorney or the prosecutor, that takes on a life of its own. And that jury, 12 people, is going to be focused like a laser beam on the evidence against Donald Trump. And from what I've read and what I know, the evidence in Jack Smith's case is extremely powerful. And the document case in Fort Pierce, uh, Florida, that's even more powerful. The other two cases, the Stormy Daniels case, I had a witness in that investigation, and the RICO, that's sort of the side issue. But those two cases, the January 6th and the document case, Donald Trump better start focusing on his legal troubles and what will be in the four corners of that courtroom. That is where the rubber meets the road. Do you think, Shan, it's possible to have a jury that's not going to be tainted uh, by Donald Trump and his rhetoric? Uh, well, not tainted in a legal sense. Uh, I think it says a lot about us as a country that we're actually able to understand those rants without a translator at, at this point. So they're all exposed to that and they're used to hearing that. But in the court, when you do the jury selection, uh, there'll be efforts made to ask if whatever people may know about the country politics, if they can set that aside and listen to the evidence. And most jurors can do that. They're quite truthful about that and they will be able to do that, I'm pretty confident. 
I'm wondering, I want to talk about um, Trump's presidential immunity claim before the federal appeals court. Do you think he has a case there, Gene? No, I don't. And here's why. Uh, when you elect the president of the United States, they deal with nations. They deal with the House and the Senate. They deal with the agencies. Those are different skill sets than getting defeated legitimately. And then the next six, eight weeks before you leave office on January 20th, you are trying to keep yourself in power and by allegedly committing crimes. There's no immunity under the sun that protects you. And I'd love to see a case that gives him immunity for that. What has been charged against Donald Trump is ultraviaries. It's outside the powers of the presidency. But people are forgetting he's also raising a double jeopardy clause uh, argument. Uh, that one is not going anywhere because the proceeding in the Senate is not a criminal trial and being tried in a criminal court of law is an entirely different thing. It is not prohibited by the uh, U.S. Constitution. Right. The proceeding in the Senate is political, right? It's not a legal proceeding. So, Kristen, Trump could ask any day now for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on the Colorado decision to, to disqualify him from the state's ballot. How is his team strategizing around that case and the many legal challenges he's up against in 2024 with Colorado? He has until Jan January 4th, if I recall, um, before that stay is lifted in that case. Yeah, Pam, they are going to bring this to the Supreme Court, and they do expect that it's going to be overturned, which, of course, raises the question as to why Donald Trump is continuing to rant against this when he has such close advisors and a legal team telling him that they really do fundamentally believe that he will be on the ballot in Colorado. And part of that, I am told by senior advisors, is the fact that it's not lost on Trump or his team, for that matter, that because of this decision made by the Colorado Supreme Court, there is now essentially a legal uh, place that he is being called an officially an insurrectionist, something that didn't exist before. So how that affects him politically and legally in the future really remains an unknown. But when it comes to his legal problems as a whole, you know, what we see with Donald Trump on paper when he is putting out these rants that is part of a strategy, and that strategy is to make this as political as possible to play this out in the court of public opinion. When it comes to strategy in terms of the legal aspect, and one of the things that Gene said is once he gets into that trial, there is so much evidence, it's where the rubber meets the road. Well, part of Donald Trump's legal strategy is to never let it get there, to push it so far yeah. uh, that the election happens, and then he is president. That is, again, what his plan would be, and then would not be able to even have a trial to possibly 2028. That is part of the strategy there. So these are just you know, ways that they are trying to circumvent the system. And again, play this out in the court of public opinion. That's the real thing Donald Trump does. All right. Thanks to you all. Appreciate your perspective. And coming up, the United States retaliates against Iran-backed militants in Iraq after an attack on American forces. Stand by for new images just coming in and information amid growing fears of a wider Middle East war. Tonight, we are following new threats to American forces in the Middle East and the United States' military response. President Biden ordering airstrikes targeting Iran-backed militants in Iraq after an attack that injured three U.S. troops. CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand is on this story. Natasha, what are you learning about these strikes? 
Well, Pam, President Biden ordered that these strikes take place on three facilities used by these Iran-backed groups, this Iran-backed group known as Kataib Hezbollah, which operates in Iraq after they launched in a rocket attack that targeted Erbil Air Base in Iraq and injured three U.S. service members, one critically. And this really marks an escalation in the Iran-backed militia's attacks on U.S. service members in Iraq and Syria. Previously, most, if not all, of the injuries that have been suffered by U.S. personnel as part of these attacks had been relatively minor and they had returned to duty in a matter of days, according to the Pentagon. But this attack that was carried out by Khatib, Khatib Hezbollah uh, just yesterday, it resulted in one service member being critically wounded. So the U.S. clearly felt a need to respond uh, very force forcefully. Now, Central Command said in a statement that they do believe that several of the militants were killed in the attack uh, and they believe at this time that no civilians uh, were injured as part of it. But look, the Iraqi government is not happy about this. They released a statement earlier today calling it a violation of their sovereignty. We should note it's the second time in just over a month that the U.S. has launched these strikes on Iraq, raising questions, of course, about whether the Iraqi government is doing enough to protect U.S. and coalition service members that are there in the country to fight uh, ISIS. Clearly, the Pentagon feeling that it needed to take matters into its own hands in this case, Pam. In the meantime, CNN is learning that the U.S. Navy intercepted a series of drones and missiles fired from Yemen towards Israel over the Red Sea today. What do we know about that? It was a very busy day uh, in the Southern Red Sea, Pam. Uh, the Houthis, they launched a barrage of missiles and drones uh, targeting commercial vessels there in the Southern Red Sea. And according to the Pentagon, the U.S. shot down 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land attack cruise missiles. And they were shot down by the USS Laboon, which is a destroyer there, and fighter jets that are part of the Eisenhower uh, carrier strike group. Now, this is just part of the ongoing attacks by the Houthis in Yemen, who have said they're going to continue uh, these attacks in solidarity uh, with the Palestinians in Gaza. The U.S. set up a coalition, a maritime coalition, uh, to try to deter these attacks just last week. But clearly, uh, the Houthis not feeling deterred uh, by that coalition of ships there in the Red Sea. Yeah, yeah clearly not. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN military analyst, retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. So here you have U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. They have been targeted at least 100 times since October. What do you think? Do you think President Biden's retaliatory strike will help deter the ongoing threat to U.S. troops? So far, there hasn't been much deterrence. Yeah, Pam, that's right. Uh, good evening to you. There are so many aspects to this that really make it hard for the administration to act in a way that's going to totally deter the Iranians or their proxies from attacking U.S. military forces. Uh, basically, what the Iranians are doing, and uh, through their proxies, of course, is uh, trying to make sure that the U.S. is tied down in places like Iraq and Syria. Uh, and they're doing it basically in response to the U.S. efforts to uh, supply Israel with weapons in the Hamas, anti-Hamas efforts that they're undertaking, Israelis are undertaking in Gaza. So that's going to be, I think, uh, what we're going to see for the next few months, at least, is these kinds of attacks as uh, the Iranians try to make life difficult for U.S. forces that are already uh, positioned in the region. So how does the U.S. walk the line then of retaliating against Iran-backed groups, not letting them get away with it, right, without sparking a broader regional conflict? 
Yeah, that's the most difficult problem for the administration uh, right now, Pam, because what the, the administration is basically faced with is the fact that they have to respond one way or the other, especially uh, if an American service member is either injured or killed. And that's uh, what we're seeing here because uh, there was at least one critically injured service member. Uh, the U.S. administration felt that they needed to respond, and they did it in this way where they attacked three different facilities of Qatayib Hezbollah. And that uh, is in itself a fairly significant action on the part of the administration. Uh, the best thing that they could do after this, if things escalate, uh, would be to go after other structures uh, and installations that exist not only within Iraq uh, by these proxy forces, but perhaps also do something in Iran. But that, of course, risks what you were alluding to, and that risks further inflaming tensions and broadening the conflict in the region. So it's a very tough line for the administration to follow, and it's going to be tough for them to carry out these kinds of responses. So for context, how concerned should the U.S. and Israel be by this threat from Yemen after this Iranian proxy there has been repeatedly attacking commercial ships? Well, I think it's it's definitely a, an area of great concern because about 12% of global commerce passes through the Red Sea, uh, right through uh, the area that's near Yemen, between Yemen and Africa. And because of that, I, I think it's very important for the U.S. and its allies, coalition partners, to respond uh, to the Houthi strikes uh, or the attempted strikes. Uh, and that what we're seeing here is really an effort by uh, the U.S. and its partners to try to limit damage to global commerce. Uh, right now, you know, you have the economy in the U.S. at least uh, on the verge of some type of recovery. Uh, it may be a bit uneven in other parts of the world. And that is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, really makes it imperative for the administration uh, to work through this and to try to prevent these attacks. All right. Colonel Cedric Layton, great to see you as always. Thank you so much. And up next, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing a, quote, long fight against Hamas as the Biden administration is looking for Israel to shift away from its high-intensity war in Gaza. And after losing contact with him for two weeks, jailed political dissident Alexei Navalny's team finally knows where he is. You're in the Situation Room. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. 
If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. A key advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meets with senior U.S. officials here in Washington to discuss the next phase of the war in Gaza. Meanwhile, residents are seeking shelter and moving from the conflict as Netanyahu vows a long fight against Hamas. CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley has the story. The terrifying sound of ongoing bombardment, Israeli shells hitting targets closer and closer to this U.N.-run school in central Gaza. For thousands sheltering here, it's time to move again. Families forced to flee for their lives, and this is not the first or even second time for many. Once again, they carried the war-torn pieces of their lives in pursuit of elusive safety. Just days earlier, many here vowed they would never move again, never. A vow they're now willing to break, only because they know their children's lives are at stake. There's no safety in the school. We're looking for a safer place. I'm leaving because of the intensity of the airstrikes and the suffering. Everywhere else is crowded. There's no guarantee they'll find a spot. But what else can they do? Even if they have nowhere else to go, they can't stay here. They don't want to die here. The scene, a grim reminder of what their parents and grandparents endured in 1948 when Zionist militias forced them out of their hometowns. In the cold winter, blankets and mattresses are precious commodities. Cars and the fuel that run them are scarce. Those who can't afford it hire donkey carts. For the rest, It's a long trek on foot. It's very tough back there, he says. Bombs are falling on people everywhere. People were injured there. We don't know where we're heading. Everywhere is under threat. We're just moving with the rest of the people. The destination for many, relatives' homes. A roof over their heads, even if they are in neighborhoods already devastated by Israeli airstrikes. Street battles raging across Gaza, turning areas north and south of the Strip into ghost towns. The scars of battle, raw. We are in a multi-arena war. We are being attacked from seven different sectors. Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Judea and Samaria, Iraq, Yemen and Iran. Anyone who acts against us is a potential target. There is no immunity for anyone. Iran's allies in the region engaging in low-level hostilities in response, they say, to Israel's war in Gaza. Yemen's Houthi attacking ships, ships they claim are Israeli-affiliated, turning the Red Sea into a dangerous route for world trade. Iran's vow to avenge the killing of an Iranian commander in Syria, sparking renewed concerns of expanding the conflict especially on the Lebanese-Israeli border. Artillery fire with the Iran-backed Hezbollah, keeping both countries on edge since October 8th. In Gaza, a race for survival between a routine of airstrikes, rushing to hospitals and burials, and the ongoing search for food and water, and a pursuit of shelter for close to two million people 
displaced. And tonight, the pressure is only rising for the people of Gaza because they are no longer in the north, where Israel says it has essentially contained the situation. So you have all those displaced people packed in the central part of Gaza and in the south, which is exactly where Israel is now targeting its military operation, because that is where Hamas is hiding out, Pamela, a very dangerous and delicate situation likely to drag on for many weeks and months to come, Israel says. Yeah, certainly millions of people there. Well, Ripley, thank you so much. Well, for more on this, I am joined by CNN political and global affairs analyst Barack Ravid, live from Tel Aviv. So, Barack, what is your reaction to Israel's defense minister declaring they're in a, quote, multi-arena war? Good evening. Well, I think we see it uh, almost every day uh, with Houthi attacks from uh, Yemen, uh, with uh, the attacks from Iraq, from Lebanon. Uh, very, very, very tense situation in the West Bank on the brink of explosion and obviously the war in Gaza and uh, this uh, uh, assassination yesterday of this uh, Iranian general in Syria. Um, it really seems that, um, uh, you know, the whole region is, is exploding and then you wonder uh, how this thing is going to de-escalate. At the moment, it just seems that the escalation is just moving forward without without any uh, way to stop it yeah it, it certainly does and then there's the question of um if and when israel will transition to a less intense phase of war in gaza you just heard will's report there you know you have millions of civilians um in, in central and southern gaza that is also where hamas is hiding and israel is targeting when do you expect that next phase to actually happen so I think that the transition from the high-intensity fighting to the low-intensity fighting is directly connected to the regional tensions that we see because the Biden administration and some people in the Israeli government think that once Israel transitions to low-intensity fighting, a lot of those regional tensions will come down, especially I think the hope is that Lebanon will come down and Syria will come down and then maybe even the Houthis will come down a bit. But we saw today an expansion of the Israeli ground operation in Gaza to what is called the central camps, uh, a group of refugee camps between the Gaza city and the city of Khan Yunis. Uh, this operation is going to continue for at least another three to four weeks before we will see this transition to low intensity fighting. So you first broke the story that a top Netanyahu confidant and member of Israel's war cabinet, Ron Dermer, is in Washington today to meet with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. So take us inside those meetings. Do you know what was said, what happened in them? Yeah, they're actually, uh, Minister Dermer is meeting as we speak right now, I think, in the White House with uh, Jake Sullivan and with Secretary of State uh, Blinken. This is a very interesting uh, visit, first because Dermer is, I think, maybe Netanyahu's last confidant. Uh, today in the Israeli government, maybe the only person Netanyahu trusts, a person who was uh, once called Bibi's brain. And Dermer is coming to the White House to talk about the day after in Gaza. And the day after is not six months from now. It's not a year from now. It's four weeks from now when Israel moves to low-intensity fighting because then so many questions uh, are going to be on the table. How is Gaza going to be run when the Israeli military pulls out of the, cent of the center of the cities and redeploys uh, along the border? Uh, Dermer also is also there to speak about an issue that 
is of great concern to the Israeli government, and this is the amount of munitions the Israeli military still has. And uh, uh, those munitions are getting close to the red line, and Israel wants the U.S. to expedite a lot of weapon deliveries to Israel. All right, Barack Ravid, uh, great insight as usual. Thank you so much. Well, other news we're following today, two weeks after losing contact with Russian political dis dissident Alexei Navalny, his team says they found him in a Siberian penal colony. His spokesperson says it was a miracle the team located him. Navalny is serving a 19-year sentence on extremism charges. His supporters say it's an attempt to silence his criticism of Vladimir Putin, who is running for re-election next year. For more on this story, we are joined by CNN Russian Affairs contributor Jill Doherty. So, Jill, walk us through the circumstances around Navalny's transfer and his defiant new message today. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really. Well, remember, he was being held in that prison about 150 miles east of Moscow. Uh, he was serving 11 and a half years. Then all of a sudden, he was slapped with another 19 years. And at that point, he, in effect, disappears. His uh, staff, his supporters cannot find him, nor can his lawyers find him. Um, they uh, were very concerned about him because, remember, back in 2020, 2020, he was um, uh, really poisoned, almost killed, with Novichok nerve agent. And he's been under very harsh conditions, so they were very worried. So he disappears for, as you said, a few weeks. Um, and that coincidentally happens just after Vladimir Putin announces that he's going to run for president again. So Navalny's team finally now tracks him down. They find him in an extremely remote penal colony, which is inside the Arctic Circle. It's uh, called Polar Wolf, and it's really part of the old gulag system from the Soviet days. Uh, the, the trip took 20 days by train. It was really circuitous, so he's finally there. And it's called a special regime colony. So it's extremely uh, cruel environment and very, very difficult because it is so cold. And there's no mail delivery, but surprisingly, um, Navalny was able to tweet, actually put on his social media, uh, tweet, and I'll read it in a second. And amazingly, he sounded in good spirits and uh, I'd say actually ironic and funny as he often is. So here's some of what he said. I'm your new Santa Claus. Uh, the Russians call that Father Frost. Well, now I have a sheepskin coat, shapka uh, ushanka, which is a hat, a fur hat with ear covering flaps. And soon I'll get valinki. And those are the Russian traditional felt winter boots. I've grown a beard for the past 20 days of my transportation. They were pretty exhausting, but I'm still in a good mood. Anyway, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm totally relieved that I finally made it. Thanks again to everyone for your support. And happy holidays. Since I'm Santa Claus, you're probably wondering about the presents, but I'm a special regime Santa Claus, so only those who have behaved very badly get presents. So uh, pretty, um, I think, in your face coming from Navalny. Yeah, yeah, just remarkable that that's his message and that he remains in good spirit seemingly from that after all that he has been through. Uh, what does it signal to you that Navalny was put into isolation to such a remote Siberian penal colony? You know, it's about as far away from civilization as you can get. And the Russian penal colonies are severe to begin with. This is probably one of the worst. 
So I think they want to get him off the map, uh, literally and figuratively, and certainly politically. Because even though it's not necessarily that Russians will vote for him, but Russians, often many Russians, want a choice in voting. And so, uh, you know, he, Navalny, is a symbol of choice. And he also talks about the corruption, uh, which he says is massive in the Putin administration. So I think they want to kind of disappear him, uh, get less attention. Of course, internationally, he's getting a lot of attention because he disappeared and now he's found again. Yeah, and, and he will continue to get um, attention. We're not going to just forget about him just because he's there. Jill Doherty, thank you so much. Well, just ahead, what might be a, quote, first step in Kanye West's long journey to amends with the Jewish community after an Instagram post in Hebrew where he apologized for past actions? Why now? After years of anti-Semitic remarks, we're going to discuss next. Kanye West, who now goes by Ye, has apologized to the Jewish community in a social media post written in Hebrew. It comes after years of anti-Semitic statements, including a post last year that resulted in Adidas dropping Ye from a multi-million dollar partnership. CNN Entertainment correspondent Elizabeth Wagmeister is with us now. So what did he say and why now after years of these remarks? It is a great question, why now? We have to point out that Kanye does have an album that is coming. Now, the release date right now is set for January 12th. Of course, in the world of Kanye, that can change, but that could help to describe and explain the timing. Now, I want to read to you what he did post, as you said, in Hebrew. Kanye said, quote, I sincerely apologize to the Jewish community for any unintended outburst caused by my words or actions. It was not my intention to hurt or disrespect, and I deeply regret any pain I may have caused. I am committed to starting with myself and learning from this experience to ensure greater sensitivity and understanding in the future. Your forgiveness is important to me, and I am committed to making amends and promoting unity. Now, of course, even though he has posted that, there are a lot of questions and a lot of confusion today. Of course, Kanye West last year, he had great career fallout. He was dropped by Adidas, as you said, also Balenciaga, the Hollywood talent agency CAA, after he posted on Twitter that he was going to go, quote, DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Yeah, how can we forget that? Uh, so, Elizabeth, how is his apology being received now? As I said, a lot of confusion, but I do want to read you a statement that we got from the Anti-Defamation League here at CNN. This is what they have to tell us, quote, after causing untold damage by using his vast influence and platform to poison countless minds with vicious anti-Semitism and hate, an apology in Hebrew may be the first step on a long journey towards making amends to the Jewish community and all those who he has hurt. Ultimately, actions will speak louder than words, but this initial act of contrition is welcome. Now, I think that statement is very poignant because actions do speak louder than words. And Kanye West, who has a major platform, last year after he 
tweeted what we just spoke about. There was a demonstration on the freeway in Los Angeles with the poster being hung that said Kanye was right about the Jews. The ADL actually reported that they had at least 30 anti-Semitic events after that tweet that specifically referenced Kanye West. So he does have a vast platform and we'll have to see what happens from here. Yes, we absolutely will. Actions do speak louder than words. Elizabeth Wagmeister, thank you so much. Coming up, watch out travelers. Snow, wind, and freezing rain are already creating dangerous road conditions for parts of the United States. We're going to show you where the storm is heading up next. So did you receive a gift this year you're not particularly thrilled with? You may want to think twice before you return it. A growing number of stores are charging fees for mail-in returns as shipping costs rise and more shoppers return online orders. CNN consumer reporter Nathaniel Meyerson joins us now. So basically, Nathaniel, if you got, you know, like an ugly sweater for Christmas that you want to return, you may not be able to return it for free, right? Is that the bottom line here? That's right, Pam, and I hope you didn't get an ugly sweater. I did not. For I Christmas. swear for my this... husband. I swear I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but more, but more stores are charging for returns. About 81% of retailers are now charging for returns, particularly online returns. So you look at some of the shipping fees for mail-in returns that retailers have added. J. Crew, $7.50. Macy's, $9.99. And then Amazon, interestingly, Amazon, they've trained us to return for free, but now they've added a $1 fee for customers who are bringing in items to the UPS store when there's a closer Whole Foods store nearby. Hmm, interesting. So obviously, you know, it all comes down to the bottom line. Tell us more about why these companies are adding these fees. Yeah, Pam, uh, returns are very expensive for retailers, particularly the mail-in returns. They have to pay for the shipping fees, then they have to restock the items, and so that's all going to impact their bottom lines. And we've seen return rates spike over the past few years, especially as more customers order online. You know, you, you think about something looks good online, then you get it in person, it's not the right size or the right color. So 2019, about 8% of all uh, return, of all merchandise was returned. That's jumped to 16.5% last year. So retailers, they're saying we've had enough and they're cracking down. So what other trends are we seeing with returns? Yeah, who thought that this return industry could be this interesting? Yeah. But there are lots of there are lots of companies that have have gotten involved. So retailers are now tightening their return windows, trying to, another move to crack down a little bit. You can bring in a lot of returns now, uh, box free, label free. That's kind of a nice convenience. And then some stores like Staples, they're offering you to bring in their your Amazon returns, and you can shop in stores with for a discount. That's a way to draw customers into stores. And I think this trend is, is most interesting. They're just telling you to keep your return. They don't want it anymore. All right. I guess I might have to keep that ugly sweater. <laughs> Nathaniel Meyerson, thank you so much. Well, millions of Americans are under winter weather alerts today. A mix of snow and freezing rain already creating these travel headaches and dangerous road conditions during this busy holiday week. Chad Myers is in the Weather Center. Chad, where is this bad weather now and where is it heading next? You know, it's still in South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Colorado. That's the worst of it. But what's happening right now, Pamela, is that the sun is setting. And even though the sun on these pictures, you can't see it, it's actually warming the ground a little bit. 
But when that sun goes away and the roads are a little bit wet, that wet becomes ice. And so that's the black ice we are going to see tonight in this area back out here toward the west. It is slowing down. The storm is now cut off from the moisture source, and we call this a low-pressure system that is kind of just swirling around. I like to call it a ho-ho, but you get the idea. There's not any more additional moisture getting into the storm, so there won't be that much additional snow. But there will be still these ground blizzard conditions. We still have had over a foot of snow in some spots, but now it's just blowing around. Now it's just going in all different directions. And so even though some spots have picked up a foot of snow, as you saw in the pictures, there was a three-foot drift, and then you could see the driveway. That's how it's been going with these winds just blowing things around. That's going to be the case for the next few hours. We will begin to lose the wind later tonight, but still maybe gain a little visibility. I've been watching these visibilities all day, and we had some delays around, you know, in Denver, but Akron in Colorado, 0.75, three quarters of a mile, and it's not even snowing that much. It's just blowing across the east. Everybody trying to get back home here, up and down the I-95. The rain is still there. It moves to the northeast for tomorrow. There's still some flooding going on in the Appalachians. You have to watch that if you're driving, especially after dark. But look at some of these areas, all the way from New York back down to D.C., and for that matter, all the way down to the Delmarva and the low country of South Carolina, we will see two to four more inches of rainfall. When has it ever been this warm for Christmas? It was 55 in Chicago for a high yesterday. Mm. Haven't seen that in a really long time, but at least it's winding down. Yeah, I know a lot of us were dreaming of a, a white Christmas here where I am, and that certainly did not happen far from it around the 50s here. Chad Myers, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, coming up, President Biden ordered retaliatory airstrikes in Iraq on Christmas. We're going to take you to the Pentagon in Israel next as the United States tries to walk a fine line in the Middle East and asks Israel to slow its bombardment in Gaza. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Happening now, the tense aftermath of U.S. airstrikes inside Iraq targeting Iran-backed militants after an attack on American forces. Iraq accusing the Biden administration of hostile acts at this dangerous moment in the Middle East. Also this hour, Donald Trump is spewing more anger at special counsel Jack Smith, saying his criminal prosecutor should, quote, go to hell. Trump picking up where he left off during a Christmas meltdown with less than three weeks ago before the first presidential votes of 2024. And CNN is at the southern border where more than 11,000 migrants are waiting to enter the United States. We're going to have an update on efforts to ease the crisis at a critical crossing from Mexico. I'm Pamela Brown and you're in the Situation Room. Our top story this hour, new fuel for growing fears of a broader war in the Middle East. U.S. airstrikes inside Iraq at sites used by Iran-backed militants. The Pentagon says it's payback for an attack on American troops who are increasingly being targeted in the region. Here's CNN's Pentagon correspondent, Oren Lieberman. 
Rising tensions in the Middle East, with U.S. fighter jets carrying out a series of strikes in Iraq against Kataib Hezbollah, one of Iran's regional proxies. The U.S. said the Monday strikes targeted drone facilities used by the militant group and its affiliates. Mourners leading a funeral procession through the streets of Baghdad, as U.S. Central Command said the strikes likely killed a number of militants. President Joe Biden ordered the strikes after Qatayb Hezbollah, recognized by the U.S. as a terrorist organization, claimed responsibility for the Monday drone attack on U.S. forces in Iraq. The attack injured three U.S. service members, the Pentagon said, including one in critical condition. In a statement, the National Security Council said the president places no higher priority than the protection of American personnel serving in harm's way. The United States will act at a time and in a manner of our choosing should these attacks continue. U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have been targeted approximately 100 times since October when the Israel-Hamas war started. The U.S. has tried to calibrate its retaliatory strikes to send a message to Iranian proxies in the region without sparking a wider war. Last month, the U.S. also carried out strikes against Qatayb Hezbollah in Iraq, killing at least eight of their fighters, according to the group. Iraq's government has condemned both of the attacks, calling them hostile acts that are unacceptable under any circumstances. The unrest has not been limited to land. Over the weekend, the U.S. has a one-way attack drone launched directly from Iran struck a chemical tanker in the Indian Ocean. No U.S. Navy ships were in the vicinity. The attack caused no injuries, but it did spark a fire on the ship, according to Central Command, as it raised concerns of a broader conflict the U.S. has been trying to avoid. And staying in the maritime domain, U.S. Navy forces intercepted a barrage of attacks they say were launched from uh, Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. Houthis are another Iranian proxy. Over a course of 10 hours, U.S. Central Command says U.S. Navy forces in the Red Sea intercepted 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land-attack cruise missiles that were fired by the Houthis over the southern Red Sea. Those interceptions from the USS Laboon, a destroyer, as well as F-18 fighter jets operating with the uh, Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group in the region. The U.S. very much concerned about the threat from the Houthis, putting together a multinational force to try to deal with these attacks, even as major shipping companies say they will avoid the Red Sea for now. So Pam, this is very much a space we will be watching. The Houthis, however, say they were targeting a ship that didn't respond to their naval forces, and they say these operations are conducted uh, to show a message of solidarity uh, to the Palestinian people. All right, Oren Lieberman, thanks so much. Turning now to the Israel-Hamas war. A close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been meeting with senior Biden administration officials about the next phase of the conflict in Gaza. So let's bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez at the White House and CNN's Will Ripley in Tel Aviv. Starting with you, Priscilla, uh, this meeting today, is it bringing the U.S. and Israel any closer on their differences over the war in Gaza? Well, this meeting is underway with a close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Secretary of State Antony Blinken, as well as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. It's a significant meeting that comes at a critical time as the U.S. urges Israel to move away from its high-intensity war as the death toll grows in Gaza. Now, Israel has assured the U.S. before that it would move toward lower-intensity fighting, more precise military strategy targeting Hamas's leadership, but they haven't offered a timeline. And U.S. officials have previously said that they would expect those localized operations to happen in January. So this meeting underway with, again, 
again, Ron uh, Dermer, who is a close confidant of Netanyahu, also a member of the War Cabinet and uh, previously served as Israeli ambassador to the U.S. And over the course of the day, senior Israeli officials have maintained that the U.S. and Israel continue to be in close discussion, that there isn't daylight between the two, and they're both on the same side. Well, uh, we take advice from friends. We consult with friends. We don't have to agree on every small detail with friends. But in the bigger picture, we all uh, share the same goals. Now, President Biden has been under increasing domestic and international pressure again as that death toll in Gaza grows. He's also said that Israel risks losing support uh, on the international stage as this conflict unfolds. If it doesn't contain those casualties, all of this topics of discussion underway now. All right. So, Will, to you, what is the latest today on the state of the fighting in Gaza? Well, it is certainly intensifying, even though uh, the Israeli military has secured the northern part of the Gaza Strip, Pamela. They're now moving their efforts to the central part of Gaza and the south. The problem with that is that you have around two million displaced people who are also gathered in those areas. And so over the last two 24-hour periods, so over the last 48 hours, we've had some of the deadliest uh, it's in terms of civilian death toll, some of the deadliest uh, incidents that we've seen. 250 people killed from Christmas Eve through Christmas uh, and then 241 for the following 24-hour period after that. Also new numbers from the Israel Defense Force, 161 now confirmed dead uh, since the uh, ground uh, operation in Gaza began 20 days after the October 7th attacks on October the 27th. Of course, those attacks killed 1,200 Israelis and so far uh, in Gaza, the death toll is now getting closer and closer to 21,000 people, uh, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. The number of injured more than double that, nearly 55,000 now, although CNN cannot independently verify those numbers. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that this is going to be a very long uh, conflict ahead, that soldiers may be having to fight for many months, even if there is a dialing down of the intensity of the operation. There's still going to be uh, a lot of Hamas militants embedding themselves within the civilian population. And Israel says, if there are Hamas militants, even if they're under Underneath somewhere where people are sheltering that is still a legitimate military target under international law and that is what makes this war unprecedented in the eyes of the Israelis the fact that basically you're dealing with an organization that deliberately puts civilians in harm's way uh, is not concerned apparently according to the Israelis about the rising death toll because they know that the pressure is continuing to grow uh, from around the world for Israel to uh, offer more concessions to Hamas to get the hostages handed over still more than a hundred of them believed to be alive and in custody and bring this war to an end. Now, the, in the Wall Street Journal, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did write an op-ed piece. We talked about the three prerequisites for peace. He said uh, that Israel must destroy Hamas, must demilitarize Gaza, and de-radicalize the whole of Palestinian society. That is not going to happen anytime soon, Pamela. Yeah, certainly not. And you brought up the, hostage, uh, the hostages that Hamas is holding. Priscilla, any progress on those talks? Well, that, too, is going to be a topic of discussion with the senior U.S. officials and Ron Dermer today. But so far, there has not really been a resolution on this front, and it has been difficult for U.S. officials to provide much clarity on what is happening now as they still do not know all of the conditions of the hostages nor where they are. Now, Israel had proposed another pause in fighting uh, for, in exchange for the release of hostages similar to what was done before, and that would include uh, women who are still held hostage by Hamas 
in Gaza, but that did not come to fruition. Now, what we know is that U.S. officials and Qatari officials have been in close touch. Qatar serving as a mediator in all of this. The president also speaking with the emir today. And, Will, to you, you know, there is this proposal from Egypt, and Hamas is already rejecting that proposal, right? Yes. According to Reuters reporting, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have rejected uh, an offer by Egypt or a proposal by Egypt to end this war. Uh, basically, it would involve a plan that would release all of the Israeli hostages, all of the Palestinian prisoners. Uh, and keep in mind, there are many more Palestinian prisoners than there are Israeli hostages. But back in 2011, Israel traded over a thousand prisoners just to get one IDF soldier back. Uh, and in, a, in return for the, this, also, Hamas would have to agree, according to Egypt's uh, apparently rejected plan, to relinquish. Uh, Hamas power over a period of time and establish a new government in Gaza. Hamas has said, aside from the Israeli hostages, there is nothing else on the table, which means we're back to square one here. Yeah, and they want all the fighting to stop before even talks with the hostages began again. Something Israel has not shown a willingness to do. Well, Ripley, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. All right, so now let's bring in a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Evelyn Farkas. She is now Director of the McCain Institute. Thanks for coming on. So let's start with the U.S. airstrikes. U.S. forces have been attacked now more than 100 times in recent months. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough, going far enough with its retaliatory strikes? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Pam. I would say that um, th this was actually a really good ret uh, retaliatory strike that we took because it was proportionate. It happened almost right away, and we explained it very clearly. I I, I think having watched the the lead up to this, though, many of many people like myself have been concerned because, as you said, there were over a hundred strikes on U.S. facilities, and we were just lucky that Americans were not. Um, hurt more and were not killed up to now. So, um, frankly, the deterrence, whatever deterrence we were using, and you have to use military means, wasn't working. Hopefully, this more punitive attack, this this stronger strike, will deter these forces, all the Iranian-backed forces, frankly, from striking U.S. forces on, on the bases. But there's also the problem, as you mentioned, Pam, and I think the correspondent also said, of the strikes uh, against maritime shipping in the Red Sea. Yeah, it's happening in a lot of different places. So do you think the U.S. took too long then for this more punitive retaliatory strike? I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, I'd really have to go down and look microscopically at each of the individual uh, incidents. But the fact that there were a hundred of them does tend to lead one to, you know, come to the conclusion that we probably should have struck harder and more definitively earlier so that they understood what our limits were. And hopefully this will make it clear. We, we, we cannot be afraid to, you know, punish them and remind them of U.S. massive military power. Right. And of course, it is that fine line of also not wanting to spark this broader conflict, right? But if these attacks on the U.S. forces continue, do you think the U.S. will more directly confront Iran? Is that smart? Um, I think that the U.S. government has a smart position here, Pam, where they maybe they maybe they didn't react strongly enough to all these strikes. But it seems that they now have you know gotten the attention, hopefully, of the Iranians. They are taking a firmer line and that should deter them from escalation escalation. I don't think that Iran wants a war with the United States and we certainly don't want the war to spread to areas beyond where there is a full scale war being waged right now. So we're trying to signal, I would imagine, behind the scenes and also publicly 
publicly to the Iranian government to get their proxies in line because there could be real damage, or real real danger to Iran um, if these proxies were to be um, conducting operations that did end, end up in a, in a loss of life for Americans and, of course, the temptation for us to escalate. Really quickly, before we let you go, I want to talk about the Israel-Hamas war. The Biden administration, as we know, is attempting to persuade Israel to move to a lower intensity phase of war soon. How likely is that, given Israel's defense minister declared that it's fighting a, quote, um, multi-arena war right now? Well, obviously, it doesn't sound very likely, Pam, because, of course, this government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, is very right-wing, very hardcore. They do not seem to have much um, compassion for the uh, regular Palestinian civilians, who, of course, are hostage to Hamas. And this is why it's actually smart to throw everything back on Hamas. And I'm glad to see that the Egyptians and, of course, the Qatari government are highly engaged now, it seems, in diplomacy, because ultimately the onus has to be on the Arab population, the, the Palestinian people, to frankly tell the Hamas terrorists to go take a hike because they have been the, the, the cause of all of this death and destruction. And the longer Israel bombs you know, in these in this massive bombing campaign, the the longer it takes for that reality to sink in across the world and certainly, of course, in Gaza. Evelyn Farkas, thank you so much. Thanks. Just ahead, the next round of Donald Trump's battle with special counsel Jack Smith as the former president claims he has immunity from alleged election subversion crimes. Tonight, special counsel Jack Smith has the next move in his ongoing legal battle with Donald Trump over the former president's claim of immunity. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider is following this all for us. So Jessica, what can we expect in the days ahead? Yeah, Pam, we're waiting for the special counsel to file arguments in this federal appeals court here in D.C. Uh, it's due by Saturday, so sometime Saturday. It, you know, they had a loss late last week from the Supreme Court. Jack Smith had urged the high court to take up the immunity issue instead of waiting for this appeals process to play out. But the Supreme Court shut him down late on Friday. So now this will have to go through at least a few more weeks of pause and waiting. Now, Donald Trump's team, they filed their arguments over the weekend. They are arguing here that Donald Trump is immune from criminal prosecution because, as they put it, he was acting within his official duties on and around January 6. So we will see the special counsel's reply sometime Saturday. And then the appeals court will hear the arguments on this issue the second week of January, January 9th. They could decide on this issue fairly quickly after that. But really, since all of the proceedings in this D.C. case have been paused, it is very unlikely that will stay on track for the start of this trial. It was slated for March 4th. The special counsel had been pushing to keep that date, but it's pretty unlikely at this point. And that's a win for Trump's team because they've been making delay part of their defense strategy. Uh, the legal team has been trying to push back on all of the cases that are confronting Donald Trump in early 2024 to clear the way for his campaign uh, schedule. But that right now there is a lot on deck. The civil case against Trump for defamation from E. Jean Carroll, that's slated to start 
in mid-January unless his legal team can figure out a way to delay. They've been working on trying to figure out a delay strategy. And then the Manhattan DA's hush money criminal case, it's also set to start in March. The DA there, Alvin Bragg, he signaled, though, that he could be open to moving that start date if it conflicted with other cases. So Pamela Trump's team, they will be working a lot in the final days of 2023, but even more work on the legal side going into the beginning of 2024, just as the campaign really heats up. Pam? Certainly. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. So let's dig in deeper on this with CNN law enforcement analysts John Miller and Andrew McCabe. Andrew, first to you, how do you assess Trump's argument that he has absolute presidential immunity in this case? And how do you expect this case to play out from here? Well, as as for his argument, I think most legal scholars are are in the camp uh, of it's a real long shot. I think that the basic premise of uh, holding the president essentially above the criminal laws of this country, it contradicts with everything we know about what the framers intended and captured in the Constitution itself. So I think they're going to have a really hard time persuading the, the appeals court and the Supreme Court if it gets in front of that court. Uh, uh, eventually. However, what's going to happen as we go forward? Who knows, Pam? This is a really, this ball is still uh, in the air. It'll obviously go through the schedule that Jessica laid out and it'll be heard by uh, the DC circuit. If Trump loses at that level, he has two options. He can ask the DC circuit for a rehearing in front of the entire court. He's not entitled to that. So they might, they might turn him down or he could go right to the Supreme Court. And the question of whether or not the Supreme Court will even take the case, I think, is a relevant one. So we'll have to see what happens. There's a bunch of legal issues involved in each one of these determinations. Uh, so we have a little ways to go, which is, of course, not good news for Jack Smith. Yeah, and these legal determinations, you know, could set precedent, right? They could make history. And so the stakes are very high. They're involving a, a leading presidential contender on the Republican side. So, John, in Colorado, the FBI is investigating reports of violent threats against the judges following their ruling last week to remove Trump from the GOP primary ballot. What can you tell us about that, the threat level there, and what's behind it? Well, the threat level there is uh, obviously increased. You've got the Colorado State Patrol uh, providing additional security around where the judges work. You have Denver police working with the FBI and the State Patrol, um, increasing security around the judges' homes. And this was a, you know, three to four split and a seven judge panel, six judges and a chief judge. But the language that is in some of the chat rooms and some of the message boards um, has turned very ugly. It's a tough case, though, Pam, because it's not just enough to say, I think these these judges should die um, to meet the bar to prosecute crimes like that, threats using interstate commerce against public officials in the course of doing their job, almost says that a specific person has to make a direct threat against another specific person saying, I am going to kill that person or, or something very close to that. So what the FBI can do here, of course, is trace these threats back to the origin, um, see who needs to be interviewed. That sends a message in and of itself. Uh, but you have statements from Donald Trump about judges and prosecutors in almost every case he's involved in, some of them uh, extraordinarily harsh that, that kind of normalize this language. And, um, and you now have, because of a judge whose family was attacked, whose son was killed, you have um, a federal law that limits what people can access about judges and where they live and so on. So this is, uh, 
being taken at an extraordinarily high level of seriousness. Yeah, so, so Andy, as John just laid out, there's this unprecedented level, threat level right now against public officials. I mean, does the FBI even have the bandwidth to investigate all of these threats pouring in? In your experience, how does the FBI handle this? Yeah, you know, Pam, the, the Bureau has an extraordinary amount of bandwidth um, and has the ability to put uh, agents on any issue anywhere in the country, you know, at really at, at any moment. And I'm absolutely positive that they're doing that here. The question becomes, what what are those agents taken away from to address this uh, this elevation in threats. And so that, that becomes a challenge for FBI leaders to manage those resources, to deprioritize uh, lower, uh, you know, issues of lower importance. Um, but there is no question that threats against the judiciary have been escalating over the last several years, really um, in tandem with the Trump administration and, and the former president's continued attacks on people and the judiciary. Um, so there's th none of this comes as any surprise, I'm sure, to the FBI and to their colleagues uh, in the law enforcement community. And there's a question in my mind that they will do whatever they can to shed as much light on these people and prosecute those that they can. All right, Andrew McCabe, John Miller, thank you so much. And coming up after an angry Christmas rant, Donald Trump is back online tonight unleashing fresh attacks. We're going to tell you who he's targeting now. Well, tonight, as the nation is on the brink of ringing in the 2024 election year, Donald Trump is following up on the tirade he unleashed online over Christmas. CNN's Kristen Holmes is here with more. So Kristen Trump just posted about special counsel Jack Smith again, and he seems to be sticking to his message of the past couple of days. Uh, unsurprisingly, not really a message of peace. Not a message of peace and not a message of Christmas cheer. It is a message of a lot of grievances and a preview of what we're going to see in the next year as Donald Trump tries to win back the White House. So what we just saw on True Social was this, him posting Biden's flunky deranged Jack Smith should go to hell. Now, this, of course, follows what we saw on Christmas Day, another uh, out of the ordinary message for a world leader when he wrote Merry Christmas to all, including crooked Joe Biden's only hope, deranged Jack Smith, the out of control lunatic who just hired outside attorneys. I'm going to skip ahead here just to get to the point. Uh, may they all rot in hell again. Merry Christmas. Not messages of peace, not messages of calm and just an airing of grievances. But this is what the former president does. And he is clearly using this platform to put out this message of divisiveness. And that, again, is likely what we're going to see in the next year. And we have already started to see Donald Trump ramping up this rhetoric. Now, when it comes to his legal issues, the thing to keep in mind here is that, yes, his team has their own strategy of filing motions, of trying to delay each of these trials. But Donald Trump has his own strategy in the political sphere which is playing this out in the court of public opinion. And we are going to see him continue to hammer this idea that this is election interference and political persecution throughout the next year. So how is this uh, angry rhetoric impacting him in the polls? Well, Pam, that's the thing. It's not. Actually, what we've seen, at least if you look at Iowa, is that as he has amped up his rhetoric, he's actually seen a boost in poll numbers. And that's why you're unlikely to see any sort of toning it down, because there is no outside political pressure. Now, does this change if he does become the nominee and he is up in a general election and looking for more moderate voters? Well, that's something that we're going to have to wait and see. But right now, he and his team, they're not facing any sort of political pressure to tone it down, to backtrack. 
back. So he's going to continue doing what he's doing. And one thing that we know, of course, about Donald Trump is that he likes to make things about himself. He likes to make things about himself being a victim. And clearly in this case, it is working for him. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's talk more about Trump's message with our political experts. Alice Stewart, I want to start with you. Let's start by taking a look at this word cloud that Trump just posted from the Daily Mail, and it shows revenge, power, and dictatorship as the most common words voters use to describe a second Trump term. Also, we should note economy is in there as well. How concerning is it, though, that Trump seems to be co-signing some of these troubling ways to describe him? Uh, He's certainly not looking at that word cloud. He's looking at the cloud of his supporters that say uh, he is a a victim, he is a martyr, and he is uh, their leader. And that's what he's focused on. And look, Pam, nothing says Merry Christmas like telling someone to rot in hell or go to hell. But Donald Trump's never been accused of being Santa Claus and certainly has no intention of changing. And what we're seeing with this rhetoric he's put out in the last few days He is really sending a message to his base that you knew what you got when you voted for me Uh, back in 2016. I have not changed. And he's really trying to encourage them to get out. Uh, On the other side, uh, there are many people that are frustrated with that and, and ready to turn the page and get away from this toxic, divisive type of language. That's why they're looking at other candidates like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. So, uh, he can bring it on and energize his base, but uh, the, there are other Republicans out there that are looking for someone that is uh, less chaotic and less toxic in their rhetoric and language. All right. So Ron Brownstein, you know, Trump's emphasizing revenge and dictatorship while making a legal argument that he is fully immune from any prosecution because mm-hmm. he was president. What does all of this bode for American democracy if he does win back the White House next year? Well, he is, as Alice said, he's leaving no mystery about how he intends to govern. I mean, he is running on on an agenda that is more militant, more extreme than he ran on in 2016 or ran on in 2020. You know, talking about weaponizing the Justice Department against his enemy, talking about setting up internment camps, military action against Mexico, repealing the ACA again. And of course, uh, possibly invoking the Insurrection Act to use the military to put down protests against all of this in American uh, cities. You know, the Supreme Court is in a pivotal and historic position here. I mean, they are part of the real world. They know what Donald Trump is trying to do. Even if most legal analysts believe this claim of absolute presidential immunity is specious, I mean, taken to the extreme that he is, it is I could choose someone on Fifth Avenue and not be prosecuted. The court also knows, because they are part of the world, that his strategy throughout his life, not only as a political figure, has been to use delay as a legal weapon. And they can choose to be complicit in that or not. Uh, They have it in their power to uh, ensure that voters have the information about whether a jury of his peers find him guilty of some of the serious crimes he's been accused of before the election, if he's the nominee or not. And so I think they have a very clear choice ahead of him and we'll see which way they go. So Kate Bedingfield, as Ron said, Trump is also insisting again that he would repeal Obamacare, even though it is a popular program that Republicans have largely given up on fighting against. So why is Trump fixating on this? Well, I think he has a preoccupation with Barack Obama, for one thing. We see this time and again. You know, he's consistently referring to the current president as Barack Obama. And I think there's probably some uh, some really ugly strategic thinking behind that. And we know he has this uh, this absolute preoccupation with Obama and everything that Obama got done. But 
you know, I mean, this is a strategic error on his part. I mean, this is an incredibly popular piece of legislation. People can feel the difference that it makes in their lives. We've seen over the course of the last few elections that taking the position that you're going to repeal Obamacare is a loser. I mean, we've seen essentially every other Republican, every other elected Republican uh, walk away from this uh, as a policy. So, uh, you know, as you look at what Donald Trump is doing this week with this really, you know, heated and hateful rhetoric uh, and tripling down, quadrupling down, I've lost count uh, on repealing Obamacare. This is not a good general election strategy for him. And this is where it would be, uh, I think, smart to see some of the other Republicans running against him try to really go hard on this case that he is a terrible general election candidate. You know, I don't expect any of them to get a profile and courage award for taking on, uh, you know, what he did on January 6th. But if you look at uh, what happened in Colorado last week or a week and a half ago now uh, with him, you know, potentially being removed from the ballot there, that was an opportunity for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley to say, you know, to the Republican base, this guy can't win a general election. Uh, and so the more we see him making this kind of, uh, you know, aggressive rhetoric, talking about uh, attacking his enemies, uh, the weaker he gets. And it would be it would be a good thing to see some of the uh, folks who are running against him in the Republican primary uh, really go hard and make that case because they're running out of time. Yeah, but I mean, the polls, the bottom line is, is as Kristen just laid mm -hmm. out, you look at polls like in Iowa, he's only gaining in popularity regardless of this rhetoric. And when it comes to the ACA, it's interesting. He said that also before, right? And he didn't repeal it when he was in the right. White House. Why would he be bringing it up now? But Alice, I want to talk about Governor DeSantis here. Kate brought him up. You know, look, the New York Times is reporting that his close advisor is privately saying, quote, they are now at the point in the campaign where they need to make the patient comfortable. That is a phrase, of course, evoking hospice care. Uh, DeSantis is banking, of course, on a strong showing in Iowa. I mean, that's really where he's put all of his eggs, right, in that basket. How revealing is it that his own campaign advisors are preparing for the end? Look, I, I take a lot of these uh, 11th hour uh, unnamed sources uh, comments with a grain of salt. And look, so many reporters and those in the media are, are drafting, they're circling the drain stories. But the DeSantis campaign is circling the wagons and they've got just three weeks left. And uh, look, it's not a good place to be. You would certainly rather have the momentum in your sales like Nikki Haley than uh, the struggles that the DeSantis campaign is going through. But I, I can tell you this, voters in Iowa are not concerned about news coverage of the caucuses. They're concerned with the commitment to caucus. And the question now is the ground operation and the commitment to caucus operation that DeSantis has. The people that have left, did they take that with them? Or are the people in Iowa committed to caucusing, as they have said? And that's going to be the question. We'll soon find out as we get closer to January 15th. So, Ron, if, if Ron DeSantis doesn't win in Iowa, is it over for him? What do you think? Well, look, the last three Iowa winners didn't win the nomination. I mean, uh, you know, DeSantis is he chose a strategy of running at Trump primarily from the right. Uh, and, and the theory that you, if you peeled away enough of his supporters to make yourself viable, eventually the people in the middle would have no place to go but to you, the ones who are the most resistant to Trump in the first place. That really hasn't worked on either end. He hasn't peeled away a lot of the Trump supporters and he left this vacuum that Nikki Haley has filled in the center. So he is in a very difficult position. His, his runway after Iowa looks pretty bleak. You know, Nikki Haley, even if she does well in, in New Hampshire, ultimately is gonna have to do better among Republicans. And that's gonna require her, if she's serious, to make a stronger case against Trump than she's been willing to do so far. All right, thanks to you all, really appreciate it. And just ahead, a jailed Putin critic who his team lost contact with for two weeks turns up at a remote prison in the Arctic Circle. We're going to tell you about the lengths they had to go to find him.
Well, tonight, after losing contact with Russian political dissident Alexei Navalny for two weeks, his team says they finally know where he is at a remote penal colony up in the Arctic Circle. CNN's Nada Bashir has this story. One of President Putin's most famous adversaries. Relieved, exhausted, but most importantly, alive. We filed 680 requests in different Russian prisons trying to locate Alexei. For weeks, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny's whereabouts were unknown. Now, his team has located him at a remote penal colony north of the Arctic Circle, after a journey Navalny says took almost three weeks. They brought me here on Saturday night. Messages posted on social media by his aides say, I didn't expect anyone to find me here before mid-January. Navalny's team raised the alarm weeks ago after he failed to show for recent court hearings. At the time, the Kremlin stated it had neither the capacity nor willingness to monitor prisoners' whereabouts. According to Russian law, after the prisoner is being transferred to another colony, they have to notify his relatives. But we know very well that there is no law that applies to Alexei, and they will never notify anyone about uh, his whereabouts. In a statement on Monday, the director of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation said the colony in northwestern Siberia known as the Polar Wolf Colony, is infamous for its remote location and harsh conditions. Navalny was sentenced to 19 years in prison in August after he was found guilty of extremism-related charges, which he and his legal representatives have consistently denied. This in addition to a previous 11-and-a-half-year sentence for fraud and other crimes. Known for organising anti-government street protests and using his blog and social media to expose alleged corruption in the Kremlin, Navalny has posed one of the most serious threats to Putin's legitimacy during his rule. His disappearance coming to light just days after Putin announced he would run for re-election in March 2024. It is no coincidence that uh, Navalny disappeared exactly at the moment when the so-called sham presidential elections were announced and Putin announced that he's going to be running again for, sorry, I lost count for which, uh, which term already. And while news of his whereabouts has brought some reassurance to supporters, there is deep-seated concern over the conditions the opposition figure now faces at Polar Wolf. And Pamela, according to a local government media outlet in Siberia, the focus at this particular penal colony is re-education through occupational therapy. But of course the conditions are said to be harsh and there is still concern over what Navalny may face at this penal colony during his time in detention. Important, of course, to underscore that Navalny, his legal team and supporters have consistently denied the charges laid against him. They say they believe this is a politically motivated attempt to stifle Navalny's criticism of President Putin. Pamela? All right, Nada Bashir, thank you so much. Coming up right here in the Situation Room, a town along the U.S.-Mexican border gets some reprieve from the unprecedented daily influx of migrants coming in from Mexico, even as thousands more wait on the Mexican side to try to enter the country legally. Eagle Pass, Texas is getting some relief from the influx of thousands of migrants coming in from Mexico. But elsewhere along the U.S. southern border, there is no let up to the unprecedented surge. CNN's Rosa Flores has this story from Eagle Pass, Texas. 
As a migrant caravan forms in southern Mexico with thousands from Central and South America, the scene on the U.S. southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas, has changed. The areas where thousands of migrants were waiting outdoors to be transported for immigration processing last week were emptied out this week. The flow this morning appearing to be down to a trickle. A senior Customs and Border Protection official telling CNN that while the scene in Eagle Pass has improved, the agency is not out of the woods yet. CBP still grappling with elevated numbers of migrant encounters on the U.S. southern border. More than 11,000 migrants are waiting in shelters in northern Mexico, 3,800 in Tijuana, 3,200 in Reynosa, 4,000 in Matamoros. Many hoping to enter legally, but some opting to cross illegally, say community leaders. U.S. federal authorities reported a seven-day average of more than 9,600 migrant encounters in December. That number was 6,800 at the end of November. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador Wednesday in Mexico City. The Biden administration is expected to put pressure on Mexico to do more to stem the flow of migrants. To deal with the flow, CBP has temporarily suspended operations at several ports of entry in several states to reassign personnel to process migrants. This, as CNN learns from a CBP official, that the surge is in part driven by pseudo-legitimate travel agencies abroad that promise trips to the U.S. but instead connect travelers to smugglers south of the border. That might explain this recent scene in Arizona. I work for CNN, and I'm wondering where you're from. What country you're from? Senegal. Senegal? Senegal? Senegal, everybody from Senegal. Smugglers are dropping off 500 to 1,000 migrants in remote areas of Arizona, the official said, creating a logistical nightmare for Border Patrol agents who have to find ways to transport them for immigration processing. For the volunteers who distribute water to migrants in the desert, it's the children who get them every time. It's heartbreaking when you see the, the little children. Now, migration is feeding migration. And Pamela, here's what I mean. I met one woman from Ecuador who says that so many business owners, job creators, are fleeing Ecuador that that is forcing other people, the workers, to flee as well to find jobs here in the United States. Pamela. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. And coming up, a story well worth your time. Apple's newest watches have been banned from store shelves in the United States. We're going to tell you why up next and what Apple did after the clock struck midnight on what could have been a White House intervention. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 